0: 1st Timothy chapter 3 Timothy 3 will be beginning in verse 1 that was a test y'all failed Um, we're not going to 1st Timothy 3 because we got a hard passage to deal with right 1st Timothy chapter 2 starting at verse 9 we'll be reading through verse 15 before I begin reading this passage Um, In preparation for this sermon, um, and at at times this feels bad to say, but I think I've spent more time uh, praying and thinking over this sermon and asking others for input on this sermon and really trying to come to an understanding of what does the Bible teach on this topic, Um, more so than many others i won't say all of my other sermons but many other sermons because this is one to easily misinterpret and it's one that in our day and age is i'll just say it it's highly confrontational and it's very uncomfortable it's difficult and um, it is offensive to many but What we understand about God's Word is that at times it will offend. It will offend me. It will offend you. uh, But we have to be open to what it says. And so in our church and in our ministry, our sermon practice, what we do here is uh, a Latin term. Sometimes when you want to sound really fancy and smart, you use Latin. We use a Latin term called Lectio Continua. What that means is the continued reading. And what we do here in our church is we typically, we get a chunk of scripture, you know, several chapters or a book of the Bible, and we preach through that book, and we hit every verse that is in that book. We've done that with Colossians, we've done that with Titus, we've done that with the Gospel of Mark, we've done that with the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, we've done that with the seven churches in Revelation. And so throughout the ministry of this church over the last five years, we've taken large portions of Scripture and and preached through it sequentially. Now, one of the reasons we do that is because we believe the whole Bible is the Word of God. And all of it is profitable and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. This past week, I had a few conversations with some people who would disagree with me on this passage that we're getting ready to preach. And as we were discussing the topic and they were making points and I was asking questions... Um, three of them, three of them said this, "How did you land on this topic to preach? Why did you choose this one? Um, wh- why did you decide to preach on that? And I said, well, this is the one we land on this week. We preach through whole books of the Bible so that we can't avoid the hard passages, the hard stuff. Uh, there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors that they kind of pick and choose the topics that they're going to preach. And conveniently, sometimes they don't have to deal with hard passages. But this morning we come to, I'm acknowledging, a difficult passage and one that is different, differently interpreted by many people. That's why it's important to understand as we begin what we believe about the Bible. This is one thing I discovered in some of those conversations this past week, is you have to start with an understanding of what the Word of God is. And so what we believe in this church is that the word of God is the very, the Bible is the very word of God, inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, written by men throughout history, and put into a book, 66 books, all with one single message, which is to point us to Christ and what he's doing on earth, what he has done and what he is doing on earth. Because this is the very Word of God, inspired, breathed out by Him, that's what the term means in 2 Timothy 3, we'll get that in uh, about eight or nine weeks, Um, is that it's inerrant. Inerrant means it's without error. That every word and every story and every passage that we have in this book is what God intended for us to have. And because it is without error and because it is God's Word, it is Fully authoritative that this book has the final word on all of life and practice. And so our lives, our ministry has to be in line with what the Word of God says. We believe the Word of God is complete, that it's sufficient for all of life, and it's trustworthy. And yes, it was written by men. But these were men that Peter tells us were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what we have is not mere prophecy of men, but the very word of God. Peter also acknowledged that some of Paul's writings, this is Paul writing to Timothy, he said in 2 Peter chapter 3, some of Paul writing, Paul's writings can be difficult and twisted by people as they do the other scriptures. So, so several things Peter's mentioning there. Paul's writings were considered scriptures even in the early church, before the close of the canon. But it also means um, that some of Paul's writings, even though it's Scripture, can be easily twisted, um, whether that's intentionally or not intentionally and can be difficult to understand. So as we come to this passage, that's what we're dealing with this morning. And so as we read, let's read this together, and then I will pray again that the Holy Spirit would help us. First Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Likewise also, that women... Well, let me start at verse 8 because it kind of picks up in the middle of a sentence. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, But with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. Would you pray again with me this morning? Holy Spirit, we've already sung this, but we ask that you would be here among us, that your presence would overflow our hearts, and that as we acknowledge that this scripture was inspired by you, written down at your command and at your guidance. Would you help us to understand it and apply it to our own lives? In Jesus' name, amen. What I want you to get, the the big topic here, the main idea of the sermon this morning, is that faithful women live and do ministry with respect. Is that me? Uh, Faithful women live and do ministry with respect. Now, my goal, I know a lot of times my sermons stretch out a little bit, and I typically, I will preach through my outline, and then my sermon's over, right? This morning, my goal is to preach through my outline for the first half of the sermon. I'm not going to give you a time frame, because that's not fair. Um, The first half of my sermon, and then to try to answer and clarify different questions that may come up in your mind, or maybe already has come up in your uh, time in the church, So you have a worship guide with an outline on the back if you want to follow along in that outline. But we're going to go through this passage verse by verse. The first thing I want you to see is that women, faithful women in the church, are to live with respect. The second thing is to learn with respect. And the third is to continue in faith. So let's see what this passage says about that. Look at the first part, 9 and 10 that women are to live with respect. He's talking about their their very attire, how they adorn themselves. Paul says women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control. Now, that is the principle that he's teaching. Okay, He's just taught a a principle, which is to dress with respectful apparel, with modesty, and with self-control before we get into the specifics of that, then in verse 10, he says, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So the principle here is that women should adorn themselves, whether that's how they act or how they dress physically, how they dress, how they adorn themselves, how they decorate themselves. Uh, They should do so with respect, with, with Uh, modesty, with self-control, as those who profess godliness. So what does it mean to profess godliness? Very simple, to profess godliness means to profess faith in Jesus Christ and to acknowledge that Jesus, by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, is making you more like Christ. This applies to men and women, right, through the process of sanctification. Sanctification means to be made holy that He is making you more like Jesus. He's conforming you, Romans 8 says, into the image of His Son. Christ is God, so the more He sanctifies us, the more we are made like Jesus, which means the more we become godly. We don't take on the divine nature, but we look more and more like Him every day as we walk and obey through repentance and faith, right? And so we're putting on godliness through the process of sanctification. This is also the picture of being conformed back into the image of God as we were created. We already read that earlier in our confession time, that male and female were created in the image of God. Because of sin and the fall, that image has been shattered. It's been broken. It's been polluted by sin. Through the process of salvation and through the process of sanctification, being made holy, being made more like Jesus, he's restoring that image in us, the image of God, which also is godliness. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so that's what it means to, be, uh, to profess godliness, to profess faith in Christ, and to be sanctified through faith, through repentance, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, to be more like Jesus, to put on godliness. So that is what women specifically in this passage, and men, just be listening because a lot of this applies to us too, right? So this is what Paul is saying women should adorn themselves with, that this should be their goal, sanctification and godliness, being made more like Jesus. And so what does he say in principle? He says, therefore, don't adorn yourself with, uh, with disrespectful attire, or immodest attire, and practice self-control. Now, he gets into some cultural specifics, right? And this is where it's tricky. At one point, he's talking about cultural specifics, and other times, he's talking about universal application. But what he says is not with braided hair, and gold, and pearls, or costly attire. What he's saying is, don't focus on outward adornment. How you do your hair, and you could you could you know move that over into from braided hair, you could say you know dyed hair or whatever. I'm am not saying you shouldn't dye your hair, but don't focus on these things, right? Uh, don't focus on what type of jewelry you you need to adorn yourself with, with outward beauty and costly attire. Don't use outward means to draw attention to yourself and try to find status and approval. Okay? Does that principle relate? It doesn't necessarily mean that these things are bad, but what he's saying is don't use those things to draw attention to yourself. The term modesty can be applied in many different ways. Yes, it can mean how, how much of yourself you show to others, but it's also just an idea of drawing attention to yourself. So a, a modest person... Is someone who is humble they won't they don't want to draw attention to themselves they want to point it away to others and so another way you could say is the way you act and the way you dress should glorify god and love others it should be good for others and that's the goal of every person's life right in christ to glorify it for the glory of god and the good of others love god and love your neighbor as yourself and so the way you act, the way you dress, the way you adorn yourself should be that. Your goal should not be to be accepted, to be approved, to have status. Uh, this past year, we, um, my daughters play softball, and we went to two of them play softball. We were, every time we would go to a softball field, uh, I started to notice that I was the only person in the parking lot that had a sedan Everybody else had a truck, all the men, and all the women had either a Tahoe or a Suburban, okay? Almost exclusively. And it's very easy to start telling yourself, I need a truck. I really need a truck. Or for a woman to to say, man, I think I really need a Suburban or I really need a Tahoe. Now, are those things bad? Are trucks bad? No, no. But when your goal is to have, so that you can draw that attention to yourself, to feel accepted, to feel like you belong, to feel like you have value, the point is your value, your acceptance, your approval, your dignity is in God. It's found in Christ. If you're trying to find that in the things of the world, then you are not living in, a t- in accord with those who profess godliness. So, put on good works in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then as He guides you, decide what you're going to wear, right? <laughs> All right, so that's the first part, is, is live with respect. Adorn yourself with humility, with modesty, with respect. Now, here's the fun stuff, right? The next part is to learn with respect through verses 11 through 14, so I want to try to pull out several words or phrases that come up in this part of this passage. The first is learn. Now before we even get into this is a, this is a patriarchal passage. this is chauvinistic, this is this, this is that. I just want to point out to you the fact that Paul tells women to learn with the men is very countercultural, okay? Can we all go there for a second? The fact that Paul is welcoming the women into the fellowship with the men to learn with them was already countercultural in Greek culture and in Roman culture. When you would go to the lecture, when you would go to the teaching time, when you would go to the uh, the pavilion or or the whatever the amphitheater, it was a bunch of men lecturing other men, and Paul is saying in the church. We do things differently. And that's a good thing, right? The women were welcomed into the fellowship and told to learn, to use their minds, to learn scripture and to be educated along with the men in equality, equally with the men. Now, yes, there is this phrase quiet or quietly. And what does that mean? Well, actually, if you just jump up a few verses to verse 2, Paul is speaking, you could say he's speaking generally to all people, or he's speaking to men specifically, but he says, for kings and all who are in high positions that, uh, well, let me start at verse 1 again. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That word quiet is the same word used in this passage about quiet, speci- specifically speaking to women. Now, is Paul telling them when he says live a quiet life that we should all take a vow of silence and not talk anymore for the rest of our life? No. <laughs> and throughout scripture, this word quiet can be translated other ways, it can mean to have peaceful, to be peaceful. It can mean to have a tranquil or calm spirit. So this is not talking specifically about indefinitely. Women should not even talk. They should hold their tongue in church. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying, just like it said for the men, now it's speaking specifically to the men and women. We should lead peaceful, calm, quiet lives. Not confrontational, not quarreling, not arguing but we should learn, what does it say? The women specifically should learn with all submissiveness. That's another word our culture hates, right? Submit. Um, Now, one thing we should say is that all believers in Christ are called to submit on different levels. All believers in the church are called to submit to the elders. We'll get to that next week. But yes, women are also called to submit to leadership in the church. Towards the end of my sermon, I'm going to kind of qualify what that means. But they are to learn with quietness, with peace, and with submissiveness. And then Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, the phrase, I do not permit, that's another one of those phrases that gets debated a lot in these conversations. Well, Paul is just making a suggestion, right? I do not permit. This is like a personal preference thing. Uh, this is his, you know, maybe wise advice to Timothy in a culture that um, would have, you know, maybe they would have not been appeal that would not been appealing to pagan culture and maybe for the sake of the gospel and that more men would come into the church. You know what? Let's just not put women in leadership. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's speaking, as we already know, as an apostle sent out by God of Christ and one who has the authority of inspired word so he's speaking on behalf of god he does this in other letters that he writes i say this i tell you this and we take that as god's word when it's in scripture so paul when he says i do not permit he's saying as an apostle sent out specifically by god to commission the church do not permit women to do this now The next phrase is to teach or exercise authority over a man. Again, we have to remember the context that this is written. This is written to a pastor of a church. This is not saying that in all of the world, women are to submit to all men. And women are not to lead or teach or exercise authority in all men in any situation. That's not what it's saying. This is specifically written in a church, local church context. It's the same thing we get when Paul in other places and Jesus in other places talks about how the husband and the father should lead in the home. That where that is possible, the, the husband as the leader should lead in the home. Are you with me there? And one thing that I've never heard, and I, I, I got to admit, I haven't had this conversation a lot but what I've never heard is, you know, I wish my husband was just a little more passive in his leadership. Or I wish men were a little more passive and didn't volunteer as much in the church. I've never heard that before. Most women, if you ask them, would prefer men to step up. Are, I mean, okay. All right. So, men, that's for us to listen to as well. Um, so there, so there's that, right <laughs> okay we're going to get into more specifics in a little bit but what does it mean to teach or exercise authority over a man in the context of the local church? there are a lot of things uh, there's a woman by the name of Mary Beth McGreevy. she is a, a wife in the PCA, a professor at one of our denominational seminaries. Yes, women can teach in our seminaries, okay because it's not a local church so What what is this? Um, Mary Beth, she said this. She grew up in a context that was nothing like the PCA, totally egalitarian. Um, If you don't know what that means, I'll try to explain it in a little bit. Um, Where the women, there was no differentiating, right? Women can do anything they want, anything they've been called to. Well, she was convinced by Scripture that that is not what the Bible taught, by Scripture. Um, Not by anyone, you know, correcting or anything like that, but by the Bible, her study of the Bible, she was convinced otherwise. And so she's, there's a video, um, she was on a a committee in our denomination that put a long 70-page document together on the topic of women in ministry, what can they do, what can they not do, what does the Bible, you know, restrict, and one of the questions she got asked a lot was, well, what what can women do in the church? And she said, almost everything a man can do. There's just a few places that that does not apply. And where that is, is what we believe in the office of elder and in the preaching of God's word from the place of authority and in, in administering the sacraments as that is tied in with the position of ministry, of minister, pastor, minister, preacher. But in all other areas of the church, women can serve and exercise their gifts All the same gifts that a pastor would need or an elder would need, a a woman can use in a local church setting. They just can't be in that office of authority, according to Scripture. Okay? So what can a woman do in the church? Almost anything a man can do. The other qualification, which we'll get to next week, is that only qualified men can serve in those offices. It's not that we're saying men can do this and women can't we're saying qualified men can do this but that that first qualification is that you are a man not because men are better than women but because they've been called to different roles in the church and in the home Uh, now this is a cross-cultural argument what do i mean by that well paul gives us a reason and this is actually really helpful if you pay attention why, you know, the question is, why, Paul? Why would you say that? Well, the next verses actually he gives his reason. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what is the most non-cultural event in history? It's creation right? It's before cultures existed. It's before human influence existed. It's before human ideas flourished. It's before any cultural influence took place. So where does Paul go in his reasoning for this? He goes all the way back to creation before culture existed. This is not a cultural context argument. Paul is saying this is, this is formed in the order of creation, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Eve was deceived and became a transgressor because Adam did not fulfill his role to lead her well. If you go back to Genesis 3, when God speaks to Adam, he actually says, Because you listened to the woman and ate the fruit, you will be cursed. It's not that he listened to the woman. It's that he listened to the poor leadership of the woman, and he didn't own the leadership position that God had given him. You know, God gave Adam the command not to eat of the fruit before Eve was even formed. It was his responsibility to tell her, that's the one we don't eat. And he abrogated that responsibility. It actually says, he was with her in the garden when they sinned it was his job to say no that's not the one we eat it was his job when that serpent started talking to the woman to say get away from us come on eve let's go this way right he was the one that forfeited his leadership and eve had to step in place and where he took her where he where she took them was down the road of deception Now, what we're not saying is that any time a woman leads, that's the way it's going to go, right? That's not what we're saying. But the principle is that Adam was responsible to lead, and he did not do that. Now, when we fail our responsibility, does that mean God's going to change up the rule for us? No. Because actually what he's doing in redemption is he's restoring everything back to its proper order. And so in the Christian home and in the Christian church... That's the first place where that where that proper order should be demonstrated. Which is in the leadership of the home and in the leadership of the church. I know this is. Are are you tracking with me? This is this is difficult stuff. Right. But it's here in Scripture. We're going to get to more in a little bit. All right. So um, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to leave that part. Oh, Let me say one more thing. Okay. Um, Playing different roles does not mean you are not equal in nature, that you don't have the same value, dignity, all of those things. Just look at the Trinity, right? The Godhead. There's three persons in one God, all equal in nature, all equal in power and glory, but playing different roles. The Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. There's a hierarchy of roles and leadership in the Godhead, though every person is completely equal. Do you agree? Maybe you don't, but that's what we call complementarianism. They complement one another, playing different roles, having different um, personalities and gifts, but still unified and equal in all ways. Now, this last verse has a lot of different interpretations, and I'm Uh, I'm I'm guessing this isn't the one that's going to be the most confrontational in your mind. It's probably going to be one of those that you're just like, I don't know what that means. So let me try to tell you what I think it means based on Scripture. Another thing I forgot to say at the very beginning of of the sermon is, because we believe Scripture is the Word of God, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We don't try to read our own interpretation into it. But we say, okay, is there anything else in the Word of God that can help me understand this? Okay? So let's look at this last verse before we try to answer some questions. Verse 15 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. There are different translations of this passage, but the ESV and other passages have translated these verbs correctly. Okay? Uh, If you go back to the Greek... That first verb, she will be saved, is in the third person feminine singular, which means it's about a female, it's about a single female, and it's in the third person. It's about someone else, not me or you. It's not first person or second person, it's third person. So the declension there, the ending of that verb is third person feminine singular, which means she. So who's the she? Well, I believe, based on the passage, is that it's Eve. It was just talking about Eve, right? So Adam was formed first, then Eve, but the woman was deceived, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Well, does that mean giving birth is a way, a means of salvation? No! <laughs> what do we do? We compare Scripture with Scripture. And if you go back to Genesis 3, the first promise of the gospel. What in the Greek is the proto-euangelion, right? The first gospel, the first gospel promise. It was given to Eve, the woman. And God promised Eve, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. He will strike, the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. Your offspring, Eve, will be the means of salvation against our enemy and for all people. So through Eve's childbearing and passing on from generation to generation, eventually her offspring, Jesus Christ himself, born of a woman, born under the law, to save those under the law, brought salvation for all people. And Eve was a part of that salvation. She will be saved through childbirth. Now, there's a question out there lingering. And this is one of those questions that you can file in your cabinet, and when you get to heaven, you can ask God if you get there before me, okay? What about Adam? Is Adam saved? And the, question, the answer is, we actually don't know. Scripture says that Adam died, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. This passage speaks specifically of Eve. Eve will be saved, through faith in her offspring we don't know about adam so this is one of those passages that some people say some scholars and pastors say what it's saying is that eve will actually be saved though adam will not but christ the new adam is our means of salvation okay so that is that's the text right um so everybody's feeling great right we can go home no problems uh, so what I want to do for the next chunk, um, I don't know if this is going to be half or what, but the next chunk of my sermon is to try to answer questions, common questions that come up. And let me just say, if you still, um, if, if there's one I don't address, or if you still disagree, or if you just want more clarification, I am totally willing to meet with you over this. Let me just say that I went, like, I had like a, uh, a theological roller coaster this past week trying to decide if I what I even believe about this passage okay I confess something but then as I started studying I was like oh maybe it does mean this and then by the end let me just say I'll just say I am more convinced after studying scripture and looking at a lot of this and talking to others I am more convinced that what I've preached so far and what I'll clarify is what the word of God teaches you might disagree with that but we can have a conversation about that Okay, so here are some common questions, clarifications. Some of the best pastors I know have been women. And listen, that is fair. It doesn't make it right, but it is fair. Why? Well, first of all, think about Paul. Paul actually said in 1 Thessalonians that he cared for the Thessalonians as a mother cares for her children. There is an aspect of pastoral ministry that is supposed to be motherly. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, a pastor is told to feed, to nurture, to care, to have concern, to be gentle, to comfort. These are all things that in ministry we are told to do, right? And that sounds very motherly, doesn't it? And I will admit... Women are better at being mothers than men are. So in pastoral ministry, those aspects of motherly care that a pastor should demonstrate, yes, it makes sense that if that is your main idea of what a pastor is, that women would be very good pastors. Okay? Are you with me? Now, I don't think that's primarily what a pastor does is it an aspect of pastoral leadership? Yes. Is it an aspect of pastoral ministry? Yes, to serve and care and nurture and to be gentle. That's why those qualifications are listed in the in the qualifications for elders in our next passage, gentleness, not quarreling, not arguing. But those are not the all of what a pastor is. Pastor actually means shepherd. It's a Latin term for shepherd, one who leads protects cares um all kinds of things lays down their life for the sheep just like the good shepherd has done so yes if you look at pastoral ministry primarily as gentle nurturing caring then yes it would make sense that you're uh that a woman would do that very well but again what we're saying is there are qualifications for leadership ministry authoritative ministry um another another argument or clarification that came up some of these came up in conversations this past week well a majority of the people in the church are women so you know whether your argument is representation or whether your argument is you know look at our resources and I in a conversation this past week I said I totally agree that's a problem that that tells me as a pastor I need to be more intentional about discipling men and raising up future leaders who are men. And that's something you'll know that I've been talking about and praying about for the last you know, three to four months. We need men who demonstrate leadership in the church, who show up, who volunteer, but also who are courageous, who protect. Um, I'll get back to this in a second. I have another note here that if I have time, I'll come back to it. Uh, It's not that important. Don't worry. Um, So let me... I already did this one. Men wrote the Bible, right? And they're going to write with a bias. And let me just say, if you have heard that argument, if you are swayed by that argument at all, well, then your whole doctrine of Scripture just fell apart, okay? If you can't depend on and rely on the Bible because it was written by men, you can't depend on any of it. Your whole foundation has just fallen from underneath you, okay? Okay? men, yes, wrote the Bible, they were qualified, called by God, approved by God, and carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that what we have is the very Word of God, which means if there's anything in it that you disagree with, the problem is not the Bible, the problem is you. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, we need to humble ourselves. This is who God looks on, With favor, those who humble themselves and tremble at his word. Okay, so we need to approach Scripture with humility, acknowledging that I could be wrong and this could be right. Um, Another argument, I genuinely felt the call of God to ministry, to this specific role of ministry. God called me and others have confirmed that call in me. And so you have a sense of call. If you're a woman, you feel like the Lord is calling you into pastoral ministry specifically to preach in a local church context, to be an elder, a place of authority, and others affirm that sense of call in you. Well, there there are generally three rules to follow when trying to confirm your call to ministry. The first is, yes, do you have an unction? Do you have a desire? Do you have a sense of call from God to serve in this way? The second is, do others recognize those gifts and that call in you? Do they affirm that? That's, that's you, you know, the body of Christ is affirming that. God speaks through them. But then the third, and most important, is does it line up with Scripture? This is the Word of God. So let me give you an example. I'll try to be a little bit vague here. I was speaking to a person one time at lunch, and this person was married, but they were not living with their wife. They were living with another woman in sin. But this person was convinced that they were doing what God was leading them to do because they felt like it was right. Their marriage was falling apart with this other woman. And this woman, they both professed to believe in God and to want to follow God's will. So he felt like this was the right thing to do. She affirmed that, And I said, it doesn't matter. The Bible says it's wrong. (laughs) So it doesn't matter what sense of direction you have from God. Ultimately, it has to line up with Scripture or it's not from God. Okay? Um, We believe this is the the authority, the final authority. Um, Another argument. Well, that was just the the culture back then. I already said that. Paul's argument is cross-cultural, right? It goes all the way back to creation. But let me just also say this. This argument has really only come up in the last 100 years of church history. So for 1,900 years, this actually was not an issue. Now, was there a lot of bad male leadership in the church for those 1,900 years? Yes. (laughs) That doesn't make it wrong or right, right? What they did was wrong, but it doesn't mean the principle is wrong. But only in the last hundred years with, I'll just say, with the Pentecostal movement and with the, specifically, the feminist movement and culture, this has become an issue. And so whose culture is speaking louder? The culture of the time when this was written or our culture today? That's just a question you honestly have to ask yourself as you come to this. Whose culture is speaking louder in my mind? Another question to ask, uh, or that might be said, is, well, I just, I don't like it. I disagree. That can't be true. And uh, you just have to say, well, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's in the Bible. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can be wrong. But sometimes the Bible will have hard things to say to us. And we have to submit to its authority. Um, Well, what about all the women in scriptures that played important roles? all right this is a big one and this is important to notice and so i just want to go through a list all right of all the places that i acknowledge women have had a key role in ministry and amongst god's people miriam in exodus 15 wrote a song for all of the assembly to sing okay her words being sung by all this, the assembly teaching the truths of god holda in 1 Kings 22, was a prophetess who spoke against the ways of an evil king. Hannah, in 1 Samuel 2, praying in the temple and then speaking, uh, clarifying and informing the priest what she was actually doing, correcting the priest, had every right to do that. Abigail spoke in 1 Samuel 25 to David, encouraged and informed him of what was right. Deborah, the judge in Judges 4 and 5, took a military role of leadership, led the people, and was also called a prophetess. Esther, queen, spoke out in courage against the king, took a place of leadership in that time that women were not supposed to take culturally. Women who followed and supported Jesus' ministry in Luke 8, Mary and Martha who sat at Jesus' feet to learn The women in Titus 2, who are to teach the next generation. Phoebe, who is called a deaconess in Romans 16. Priscilla, who with her husband Aquila, helped clarify theology and teach Apollos. Um, That's in Acts 18. Philip's four daughters, shout out, uh, were all prophetesses, all right? Um, I have four daughters, if y'all know that. Okay, so... uh, just lost my place. The Corinthian women in, in 1 Corinthians eleven five are said to prophesy in the assembly. The woman at the well was the first evangelist who went and shared her testimony in John 4. Women who stayed at the cross faithfully when the men seemed to run away and the women who were the first to witness and testify and tell others about Jesus's resurrection. Women were with the other disciples, praying when they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in Acts 1 and 2. And Joel says in Joel chapter 2 that his spirit would fall on all flesh, men and women, which was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. That is all true. I do not disagree with any of those things. But none of those things say that, a woman, that women should be in a place of spiritual authority in the home or in the church. What it says is women have gifts, equality, purpose in ministry, but in the specific context of the local church, qualified men are to be elders and pastors and preachers. We're going to get to that over the next couple weeks, but can we all just take a deep breath and say, okay, if this is what the Bible teaches, what does that mean? Okay, now I have... One other kind of point I want to make. Jesus and Paul were not afraid to buck the system, were they? Right? They weren't afraid of culture. They actually preached against culture to the point of death, to the point of suffering, torture, and death. They were not afraid to offend the religious leaders, religious authorities, or the culture of their time. And yet, when they had every opportunity, when Paul was appointing elders in the local church setting, he was very clear that this was for qualified men. When he had every opportunity to say, and women. And he uses, he doesn't use the term Adelphos, or, sorry, um, uh, Anthropos. He uses the term for man, specifically. So this isn't general mankind. This is men in the place of elder and pastor and shepherd. So Paul, when he had an opportunity to make this general, did not. He was very specific. But think about Jesus' ministry. He had women following him, which, yes, was countercultural. He had women sitting at his feet, learning and from his teaching, which was very countercultural. He shared the gospel with a... Uh, scandalous woman at a well and told her to go and tell others. He commissioned her into the work of evangelism, which was very countercultural. The fact that he even sat down to talk with this woman was countercultural. Paul and Jesus were not afraid to to speak out and, and live against culture. But when Jesus had an opportunity, of all those women that were following and supporting his ministry... To appoint one woman, just one out of 12, he didn't do it. And you think if he was trying to establish a new order of authority in the kingdom of God and in the church, that that would have been the time to do it. Now, I know that's an argument from silence, but it's a pretty strong argument. I heard someone this past week say, well, we have to look to the example of Jesus. I said, okay, look at the twelve. Well, Jesus loved everybody. I said, I know. We're supposed to love everybody. Jesus said, all are equal. I said, I know. All are equal. Okay? But we are called to different roles. It's not because men are better than women or more gifted or more capable. It's because God has a a specific creative order that the church is meant to restore in the home and in the local church setting. So... If you still have questions (laughs) or disagreements or if that's still really hard, a a pill to swallow, there are many things that women can do and are gifted to do, more so than men, in the church and in the home and in life, but specifically, as we'll see over the next two weeks, the office of elder, um, I believe the elder specifically, there's a little bit of um, confusion on deacon, which I'll study that up more in the next couple weeks and we'll be ready for deacons too, but um, for now... Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for your bride, your church. Lord, as we look at Scripture, some of it's very hard. Some of it challenges our our own thinking and our own bias. But Lord, would you help us to humble ourselves and tremble at your word and follow it obediently, to the best of our ability, with the help of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you be with our church? Would you help the women to to serve and minister in those places that you have said is completely open to them? And Lord, would you help our men to serve as well in all areas of church and ministry and raise up men to lead in those places that you have called us to lead? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, and for your glory and the good of others, the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.